Um, hello, everyone. It's nice to see you again. And tonight we're going to talk about the third inversion or distortion of perception in the list that the Buddha gave, which is to see things as self, which are not self. And as you may know, the, the Buddha talked about not self from the beginning of his time teaching his 45 years of, of sharing the Dhamma. And it's really the defining principle of Dhamma um, that, that we recognize that this body mind um, is not a thing, but a process and not a, not a self, not an enduring self that even though the Buddha talked about rebirth uh, a lot and how that works, he was clear that it wasn't an abiding self or soul that went from lifetime to lifetime, merely a process based on conditions. So everything uh, that the Buddha, the Buddha saw that everything is preconditioned. Uh, it's based on the things that came before. And that's why our actions are so important because they put the causes and conditions in place for the future. And uh, the Buddha also said that nothing is predetermined. So that's why we can change course. And so when we look at this idea of self and not self as a distortion, it's, it's where we assume that something is really me or mine when it's not. And the, um, you know, when I think about how we come into the light, this lifetime and the way we develop as children and we start to recognize that we are separate from other people, that there's this concept of me. And then we develop these ideas about ourselves based usually on what other people are reflecting back to us. And when we think about that, we're probably, you know, really, um, you know, assuming that the body is us, you know, who am I? I'm, I'm this body with this kind of physical, these kind of physical characteristics. And I might have my personality and my mind and the ways that I feel and our language is really very supportive of this kind of, you know, assumption. It's my body. My heart is beating fast or my, you know, I'm, I'm sweating after exercise or whatever it is. When we say things, you know, it's me and, it's me and mine. And I'm sick or I'm feeling angry or whatever those, you know, whatever comes up, the language is really um, reestablishing constantly that this is a self. But the Buddha was uh, calling that not just into question, but showing us step by step why that's not the case, that we can't... Um, really depend upon the body or our feelings or our perceptions or our 
mental activity or the consciousness that takes in the, the sense input and makes sense of it as reliable or stable or under our control. And therefore, according to the concept of what a self is, it couldn't possibly be a self. So this is what we're going to see. And then, of course, there, we're going to see in the poetry other kind of um, aspects of me and mine, you know, our, um, you know, attitudes about ourselves, who we think we are, and see like how the Buddha related to that. And then how, how one begins to see the reality and then why that's related to awakening. So I'm going to share the screen. Taking not self as self. I'm going to start with this, um, ver these verses from the Sanyutta Nikaya. So that's the linked discourses or connected discourses. And this is um, <clears throat> in the fourth Sanyutta. It's called the Mara Sanyutta. It's, it's all it's suttas uh, that have Mara showing up in them. And most of you, maybe you all know that Mara is also called the evil one or the wicked one. Um, he's the, the deity that is trying to keep people from getting enlightened. That's his role he wants he wants people to stay in the realm of samsara and it's considered to be his realm that's where he has control and he um it feels threatened i guess we could say when uh, people are um, moving in the direction of awakening so i didn't copy the prose part of this sutta in but Basically, what happens is the scene is that the Buddha is giving a very rousing, inspirational Dhamma talk to the mendicants, the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, about Nibbana. So really encouraging them and, and talking about Nibbana. And they're listening in, with real attentiveness, really hanging on every word. And Maris sees that this is going on and wants to disrupt this. So Mara takes the form of a farmer and has this large plow on his shoulder and a big long stick goad in his hand and his hair is all messed up and disheveled and he's got muddy feet and he's wearing like hemp, hemp clothing and comes up to the the Buddha and the mendicants and he says to the Buddha, have you seen any oxen come by? And the Buddha says, Mara, what do you have to do with oxen? So the Buddha wasn't fooled at all. Um, and then Mara says, the eye is mine and all the sights are mine and eye consciousness and eye contact are mine. And then he goes through the other senses, nose, tongue, 
sound, ears, body, and then mind. Mind is mine. Ideas are mine. The contact of, of all of our thoughts, and that's mine. The consciousness of all that, that's mine. And he's saying, this is all part of my realm. And he says to the Buddha, how can you possibly escape me? You know, like, how can you imagine that you're going to escape me? Escape sansara, escape to nibbana. And the Buddha says, yeah, those things are, are yours. But they're not mine. And so this is the this is the verse, and the Mar- Mara is saying this first stanza here: the things they call mine, and those who say it's mine. If your mind remains here, you won't escape me, ascetic. So you're never going to escape me if that's what you think. And the Buddha said, the things they speak of aren't mine. I'm not someone who speaks of mine. So know this, wicked one, you won't even see the path I take. And then Mara vanished right there. So the Buddha is saying, and and this is comes through throughout the suttas, that Mara can't find the arahant. When someone passes away, um, uh, enters Parinibbana, it said, when the, an enlightened one, dies, when the body dies, then Mara can't find their consciousness anywhere because it's like the flame going out. But Mara can't follow what goes beyond samsara, what goes beyond the world. So when the Buddha talks about all the what's not self, he talks about it often in terms of the sense bases like it is in this sutta. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. He also talks about it in terms of the five khandas. The body, feeling, perception, mental activity, and consciousness, sense consciousness. Now the word in Pali that's used here for mind is not chitta. It's mano. It's the intellectual faculty. And that's pretty different because chitta is also translated as mind or heart. But it is also used in other ways that talk about what, what separates from the body when we die and continues on. So it's, a, it's interesting to dig into that. But this is, and, and also the chitta is not me or mine either. <laughs> so the Buddha, you know, in every case, he doesn't, He doesn't come out and say there is no self, but he also doesn't say there is a self. What he points to every time is the fact that what is, what arises that we think of as me and mine is actually based on conditions. And when those conditions are removed, it falls apart. And anything that falls apart If we attach to it, we suffer, and it can't possibly be a self because it's completely unreliable. 
Any questions or comments so far? Yes, I can. Yeah, hi, Aya. Um, uh, I, uh, you mentioned that the Buddha doesn't say that there is a I or there isn't an I. Could you just uh, please explain on that? I <clears throat> somewhere I get a sense that there is no I, but yeah, could you just expand on that a bit, please? Yeah, there are places in the suttas where the Buddha refuses to say. <laughs> that there is or is not a self. And he said the reason is that it confuses the person if he says there is or if he says there isn't. And it, <clears throat> what we hear from um, master teachers also, in addition to what we see in the suttas, is that the, um, the, the idea of self or not self is really related to our kind of, um, you might say, ordinary consciousness pre-enlightenment. Once we're enlightened, Ajahn Mahabhuya said, it goes beyond self and not self. So it's like, it's really from the, from the frame of mind of an unenlightened being, when we think there's no self or we think there is a self, it's confusing. But I feel like the clearest um, representation of it is that the idea of a self has this idea of eternalism attached to it. And the idea of a not self has the idea of nihilism attached to it. And the Buddha said, just set that all aside and look at the conditionality. Look at dependent origination. That's what's going to, to describe what's actually happening, and that we can see for ourselves. We can see the body deteriorate. We can see how feelings change all the time. We can see how these other things that the, are part of the, the five khandas or the sense bases are unreliable. And we can see that when we come to things from a place of the conceit I am, we suffer. And that's probably the most prominent and obvious proof that we have that recognizing that none of these things are me or the possessions that I have are mine, all the things that we think we possess. You know, we work hard, we buy a house, we buy a car, it, we, we, are, we are using the language again of this is mine. These are my assets. This is what supports my life. I have a bank account or whatever. Um, but then, of course, it's all very unreliable and can, can disappear at any time. And so the Buddha talks about, you know, how this is not something we can depend upon or really call mine. The people in my life. The first time I was confronted with this was a was a Hindu guru. I I 
I won't go to, through the whole story, but I mentioned my garden and he said, it's not your garden. You just think it's your garden because you bought it from someone else who thought it was their garden. It's not yours. And that gave me some, this is way be, long before I, I met up with the Dhamma, but it's like, what is really mine? I knew my children weren't really mine. They're their own being. I can't control any of that. And it's like, I, I knew that the, the huge oak trees on the property that I owned um, were not mine either. I can't own a, a, a magnificent living tree like that. And so, you know, you start to really reflect on what is really mine. What can I call mine? And there isn't anything in this world we can call mine. But this isn't a useful reflection to go through for ourselves. I hope somewhere in there I answered your question, Sikat. <laughs> that was helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Did we stop sharing? Okay, we're going to start sharing again. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next poem. Now, this is from one of the monks, and the translation is from um, Venerable Gyanananda, and it's um, the Bhikkhu Genta in the uh, Teragata um, 6.9. And he says, I was intoxicated by my high class birth, wealth, and status. I was intoxicated by the beauty of my body. I didn't care about anyone who was equal to me or elder to me. I was so stubborn. I was foolish to be so arrogant. I lived lifting high the flag of conceit. I did not venerate anyone neither my mother nor father, and no others regarded as honorable. That's how strong my stubbornness and disrespectfulness were. But one day, I happened to see the supreme trainer of people to be tamed, the best teacher for the three worlds, the Buddha. I was looking at the great teacher who was walking like the blazing sun surrounded by many other monks. My mind was pleased with that sight. I threw away all pride and intoxication. I knelt down with my head near the sacred feet of the best of all beings, the Buddha. I worshipped the Blessed One. My pride of superiority and inferiority were eliminated and completely uprooted. The conceit I is cut out. All forms of conceit were destroyed. So this gives us, you know, this image of thinking about me and mine is not only tangible objects and friends or family or whatever, but, you know, where we place ourselves relative to other people and how we think of ourselves and this, you know, the stubbornness, the arrogance, um, the disrespectfulness, all of these things. And it can be either way. 
you know, I'm a really good person. I'm a kind person. I'm a, um, a helpful person. Any kind of like I am. If you actually look into it deeply, it's a trap. First of all, none of us are, I'm the happy person all the time. None of us are, I'm the helpful person all the time. And any of it is that we identify with, we suffer from. Even if it's really something very um, respected. Now this, I want us to show, I want us to think of the distinction between this idea of identifying with a quality or an attitude or something and what it is like to live according to precepts and be really, um, you know, honest and kind and patient and not identify with it. That the qualities and the actions that we take that are wholesome and good and the following of wholesome wholesome activity and making an effort in that direction and abandoning our bad habits and so on. These are things that really can make us happy and give us peace and confidence and reduce the trouble in our lives. But when we take it as this is, this is me, this is what I am, what, what comes in there brings suffering. It means it's, it's, it, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And, you know, to, to see the change in this person who had all of this arrogance when he saw the Buddha, which had to be an incredibly powerful experience to be in the presence of the Buddha, and to have feel that drop away, um, to actually bow. I don't know how many of you, how you feel about bowing, but I know that um, when I began to bow, um, I really could appreciate how what we do with our body actually has an effect on the mind that bowing in itself to what deserves respect really has um, a beautiful effect on the mind because we set aside or we begin to release some of that pride and arrogance. And, and oddly enough, self-confidence that is solid and sound begins to develop further and self-arrogance goes away. And, you know, when we have that kind of um, idea of self, because it's actually unreliable, it's, it's it's not something we can control or maintain. It doesn't have a solid foundation. There's a sense of insecurity behind it. You know, when we're arrogant, puffed up, or even when it goes the other way, I'm, I'm, I'm not good, I'm less than others. When we have any of that kind of comparison, there's a, an insecurity behind it. 
because it's not it's not actually real in a sense but when we're relying upon virtue generosity kindness when we're selfless we can feel solid we don't have to feel like um, the rug can be pulled from under our feet we're on solid ground and we're not puffing ourselves up we're not on a pedestal um, Yes, Holly? A while back, I was sitting in front of a good teacher, and during the course of the teaching to the group of us, this teacher looked at me and said, Holly is very happy. And I was. But as I've reflected back on that moment, it was the whole moment that was happy. Mm. It was everybody there. It was the teachers and the listeners and the place and the ambiance and the time. And yeah, I was completely happy, but that doesn't mean I'm happy all the time. It was like, I was like a happy moment mm-hmm. in that. That's how I've come to look at it. Because it was kind of a powerful moment. And I, I could have taken it and gone, yeah, Holly's really happy. But I didn't do that. Not only would that have been wrong over the long haul, <laughs> but the gift of it was just to be so happy in that moment was a window. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different quality, isn't it? When it's not self, it's being present with what's happening and um, knowing it for what it is. Yeah, thank you. So to imagine our pride of superiority or inferiority or even as an e- as equal, the Buddha said, when we're thinking in those terms, we're far from the Dhamma. To eliminate that, to uproot it, the conceit I, the conceit I am, that that doesn't fall away entirely until Arahantship. Because there, even even if we know for sure that the body's not self, that none of the khandas are self, none of the sense bases are self. There's still a sense of I am that lingers until we have the full, um, full awakening. But that's okay. You know, we can, we can really, you know, what I've seen in many practitioners as they develop and what I've experienced in myself is the more we let go of this sense of self, the happier and more um, content and and oddly enough self confident or or solid we feel it's really beautiful. Any other comments or questions? Thoughts about this poem. Yes, Juanita. You're muted. In this poem, I think um, the the monk who found the Buddha, maybe I think his mind's ready. Yeah. Yes, and then when he says, "I." 
when when we have an idea that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself, something like that, just thinking about it, I think is hard to hard to to really truly let go. Right. But um, when one experience something that oh, when the mind experience something that is not this not me, then then we we start to realize. Mm-hmm. Um like I don't know I think I don't know but uh, in my experience when meditate mm-hmm. and we start to see that our thought separate <laughs> in, in separate and we know, oh, the thought is not us, or yes. the, or this, the body is not us, and we start to see this is not me, that's not mine. That's mm-hmm. something like that. I think it's a scream of it, but something like that. When we practice more and more, we realize that, yeah, it's not, it's not in itself. It's not me. Mm-hmm. So I just part of the 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 stream of things as the nature of all things. So. But I think uh, in this poem, I think he he probably see, and then he's just profound realized in that moment, or experience it himself. It's not 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 from the thought. It's experience himself that this is not me, not Atta. Right. Yeah. In in my in my understanding, and uh, beside that, if we, we just say okay, not me, not my, not me, in the end, it's still only thinking. Right. But, but I think the thinking is an important start. You know, the Buddha says that we should, you know, listen to the Dhamma and really reflect on the Dhamma and think about it and, you know, accept it with, with reason, consideration and all of that. And then insight, when it comes, it really can hit home, you know. So I think there is a place for the thinking about it. But it's so true what you say, that that's not what really does it for us. That's not what makes us let go. It's the, it's the insight. And so I, I think, and I also want to say that, you know, the, there's probably some practice and time that happened for this monk between the time that he saw the Buddha and he was, you know, kind of, you know, overcome with this, awe and humility that he had not felt before and the actual complete dropping of his pride and superiority. I think that there's probably, you know, he didn't probably become an arahant in that moment, but that was the significant shift for him to get to that place where he could be completely free of the conceit I am. So yes, it's very, it's crucial that we make that shift or that leap or that step from intellectual processing, reflecting on the truths that the Buddha taught to direct experience of them. That's what makes, um, that's what changes us, changes the process that is us um, to awaken. Yeah, thank you. Manita.
anything else? Okay, we'll go on to the next one. This is the Arahant Kimbala. Kimbala was one of the friends of Venerable Anuruddha. We have a few, quite a bit about Anuruddha in the texts. He was a cousin of the Buddha and um, Venerable Kimbala and Nandiya were two monks that lived with Venerable Anuruddha and they were all incredible meditators. Um, and this is one of the verses, I think there might be more from Kimbala, but in this one he says, this youth will fall down just as an unbalanced object falls down. Yes, this form appears to belong to someone. I don't have any desire for this form. I investigate wisely the true nature of my life, like looking at something that belongs to someone else. So some of that deeper reflection that goes on when we practice meditation and practice reflecting on these, you know, what is this body? Um, what is this, you know, process of thinking and, and um, conceiving of things and, you know, and, and this identification with being young or whatever, old, but youth, this youth will fall down just as an unbalanced object falls down. I really like that, that um, metaphor. You get the feeling of it. Yes, this form appears to belong to someone. It's kind of interesting to, to look at our own life, ourselves, our body, as if it belongs to someone else. You know, from just stepping back and seeing. And there's something in this, too, about letting go of our past. You know, letting go of the mistakes we made, if we think of ourselves, and seeing how much of our... Um, our actions, our life is based on conditioning. And then the learning we go through and the, the refinements we make um, to, to develop more skill. And that we can, you know, without identifying so strongly with what came before, I think we're better able to forgive ourselves, forgive others, you know, and, and really see the value of, of picking up the Dhamma and, and living according to it. They're just some thoughts. Any comments? No? Let's go to the next one. So here's the Bhikkhuni Vimala. Um, last time I think it was we had a 
courtesan and we have another one here maybe that was our first week i'm not sure but she says in the past i was extremely beautiful and fit i was intoxicated by my appearance my figure my beauty my fame and my youth i was self-absorbed and conceited i despised other women I adorned this body so fancy, cool, cooed over by fools. I stood at the brothel door like a hunter laying a snare. I stripped for them, revealing my many hidden treasures, creating an intricate illusion. I laughed, teasing those men. Today, having wandered for alms, my head shaven, wearing the outer robe, I sat at the root of a tree to meditate. I have gained freedom from thought. I have cut off all ties that lead to rebirth as a human or a god. I have wiped out all defilements. I have become cooled and quenched. So we don't get much of a sense of the process that went from that previous life to this one. But you can see that her view of herself and her, um, what she thought was enjoyable, fun, or attractive, or her, um, kind of assets have completely fallen away from her mind. And now she's valuing the practice meditation, the practice of renunciation, the practice of seclusion and letting go of everything. Yes, Charles. Um, what's interesting to me as an older person, kind of about what you're saying and how it relates to this poem, is that you're saying in a way that there's the, the poem is saying there's a conceit of this very young, beautiful woman. And then would it also be true that there's a conceit of a very old, unattractive man of course so yes it's, exactly it's, that's, that's kind of interesting that's very yeah. interesting yeah 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 and does it come through this you know like if you if we each of us thinks about you know what do i how do i how do i think of myself who do i think i am mm. What are the things I identify with as me? Like I just turned 70. Do I identify with myself as a 70-year-old woman? Do I, do I take as a sort of a self this idea of being a nun, being a bhikkhuni? Or do I just 
recognize that that's the conventional reality of, you know, the form I have, the time of this form has been alive, the, you know, presentation of it and make use of whatever those qualities are for the benefit of of developing in the path and for the benefit of what good I can give to others, that kind of thing. You know, it just really is about how we relate to this idea of who I am. And how deep can we take it? You know, if we if we are investigating any of those things that I think are me or any of the things that I think are mine, and then we look deeper and deeper into it, where does it lead? Is that really who we are? Can I really say that's me? It's constantly changing. It might completely fall away anytime. I don't know if you've ever had the um, experience of doing this kind of question uh, kind of thing with a with a partner. I mean, I was um, in a Qigong class many years ago, where the Qigong instructor so you're doing a lot of work with energy and you know getting very sensitive to energy and awareness of your body and the feelings in your body and then he had us partner up and have this you know kind of inquiry who are you the partner would ask you who are you and whatever you said whether you know i'm i'm a computer scientist i'm a mother i'm this i'm that i'm this i'm that well it's like and then the question just again who are you who are you, but who are you? You know, it's like, and you're peeling away the layers of all these perceptions of who are you? And then where does it, where does it end? Where does it go? In that case, for me, it peeled down to just a a column of energy running through my core. And the insight that that energy was the same column of energy for all living beings. Well, that's kind of tricky. <laughs> it's certainly not a self, not an identity. Yes, Deborah. Hi, thank you. Um, I had an interesting experience this weekend that really helped with the not self. It was unexpected. Um, Bikkhu Bodhi was doing a day long on Saturday. He took us through two guided meditations on the 32 body parts, uh-huh. is on the unattractiveness of the body. And I had a real aversive reaction to the whole thing because I don't, I don't have, I don't have clinging to my body. I have, um, aversion to my body because so many health problems. Um, but I realized after that, it sort of dissolved my sense of the body as a whole or a solid thing. Yeah. Suddenly I'm like, oh, it's just a bunch of parts. Yeah. <laughs> so it turned out to be really helpful in that regard. Um, start to dissolve at least the concept of the body being a, 
all of it. Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. It's, that's the that's kind of the point of that. You know, we've got that um, from the suttas. It's it's in our chanting books, in our tradition. You know, to really go through these these parts of the body, the thirty two parts, and and to really see the Buddha. Uh, compared it to like a chariot. If you take a chariot apart and you lay all the parts out, I take your Tesla apart and lay all the parts out. It's just not the same, you know? It's like, it's not really that cool car anymore. It's just a bunch of parts. And this body is also just a bunch of parts. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. Jerome? Hello. Um, the word in this last poem, the word intoxicating really stuck with me. And I just kept pondering it. And it, it made me think about how, you know, consuming myself through sensual pleasures, uh, or the reflection of myself through others, how intoxicating that is. And then I thought of the word intoxicating and associated it with uh, like alcohol and how alcohol can kind of blind you and distort your reality and, and how my engagement with self and sensual pleasures is like this constant intoxication that is blinding, blinding me essentially, or distorting my reality. And I was just wondering if that's uh, the right view of. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. And the Buddha talks about intoxication, of course, intoxication with sensual pleasure, but intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. You know, there's there's all these these ways in which we get high on who we think we are and what we have, and you know, intoxication with wealth. You know, and we lose track of what's really important. We think we've, you know, got the world by the tail, but. Before you know it, the tail whips out and slashes us. You know, it's like it's, like, it's just, uh, yeah, it's intoxication, and we do come down from it. If we don't look at reality, then we're really caught unaware. When things fall apart, we're devastated, and and that's and that's the function of being intoxicated, not having a, a real um, realistic relationship to the world we are in and to body. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, instead of this being like a, a drag, <laughs> you know, to see the truth, it's freeing, it's liberating. It's, it's like it's it brings contentment and happiness that isn't so easily shaken. 
Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jerome. It's pretty amazing. Um, going beyond this idea of an, a lasting self and coming to grips with um, how we might wish that there could be a lasting self. Like sometimes, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, rebirth, they want to be reborn because they want to keep going. They want the self to continue to really recognize that that won't be you. <laughs> you know, like it's not the same. It's not like we can maintain the ego. So really coming, you know, like seeing why we cling to this idea of self. What is the, what are we getting out of that? And then seeing this, the suffering, the danger in it. That's what really helps us to open up to that experience that, that Wanda was, uh, Juanita was talking about, you know, this, this experience of realizing that it's, it's not me or mine. It really is not me or mine. And the freedom that comes from it. So we'll continue here. I think we've got a couple more. Vita Soka Bhikkhu. The barber approached to shave my head, so he's going to become a monk here, I think. I picked up a mirror and examined my body. My body appeared hollow. The darkness of ignorance is abandoned. The rags of ignorance have been torn out. Now there'll be no more future lives. So from that examination of the body, realizing the truth, the not-selfness, the hollowness of the body. So this practice of looking at the 32 parts of the body or whatever the parts of the body, um, it is important to gain some calm of mind, some um, stability of mind, and then to use that reflection as a way to break down our very, you know, natural, intense identification with the body. Um, I say natural because this is as born as a human being into this world or any world born into as, as a human, as a deva, whatever, you know, this identification with the body is so strong. And when we recognize 
it for what it is, then we can really care for it, make use of it, but let it go when it when it starts to fall apart. And to use the reflection on the body, the parts of the body is a very, very helpful practice. So one way that I practice with it is a guidance I was given by one of the teachers in Thailand is to, you know, come to that place of calm and then take the pieces of the parts of the body out, take them out of the, the body. So like we start with the hair of the head, the hair of the body, the nails, the teeth, the skin, but also taking the sweat and the pus from the skin out. And then visualizing what's left. And one of the support, supportive um, resources that I have found are the, is a book on body worlds. If you've, if you've had any exposure to that uh, plast, plast, plastination, this process of, of taking human bodies after death and preserving them through this process where you can really see the body parts. I don't know if you've, any of you have been to exhibits of this um, body worlds or if you've looked at these images. But I have this book. Um, and when we do retreats where we're going to use this practice, I'll bring the book so people can take a look. And, you know, it's interesting that you can't really find pictures of the actual human organs online. When you look for anatomy or physiology pictures, they're all drawings. Because I think it's just so hard to take to see actual organs and, you know, actual human body parts. So when we think of our body parts, you know, usually we don't think about what all this stuff is inside of us. We just think of you know, the, the outside. And then to visualize those parts and remove them in, in your imagination from the body one by one until there's nothing left. And then uh, this teacher said, then last thing, take that chit out. and then put everything back one by one and then do it again the whole process and again three times before you get up from the cushion so i've been using that practice and it's very calming i find and beautiful And you're welcome to ask any questions about it. To, of course.
So here we have a poem, Mita Kali Bhikkhuni, one of the Arahant Bhikkhunis from the Terigata and another one. And this translation is by Aya Soma, she's a Bhikkhuni friend of ours. Um, and it says, Mita Kali says, I went forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness. I wandered here and there, longing for gain and honor. Disregarding the highest aim, I pursued an inferior goal. Controlled by defilements, I did not understand the real purpose of the contemplative life. While sitting in my hut, I was struck with a sense of urgency. I've entered upon the wrong path. I'm under the control of craving. <clears throat> Decay and sickness are trampling my trifling life. There is no time to waste before this body falls apart. In conformity with the truth, I observed the rise and fall of the khandas. I stood up with a liberated mind having completed the teaching of the Buddha. So it's interesting seeing the, the development here, even though she went forth becoming a bhikkhuni with a lot of faith in the Dhamma, faith in the Buddha. She was sidetracked by wanting to be respected and to gain requisites, I imagine, because that's all you can really gain uh, as a bhikkhuni. And not having her focus on the goal of awakening. really being driven by craving and desire, not really living the contemplative life for its real purpose, and then really having a sense of urgency. So this sense of urgency is so important, and some of the practices we're talking about really gives this sense of urgency as if we're looking at the body as it is, then we see that any part can fall, fall apart or have problems at any time, which is another kind of reflection we could have on the body. And not to bring up fear or anxiety, but to just recognize, wow, I should apply myself while I have health to the best of my ability, not waste time on foolish endeavors, things that waste my life energy, and really open my mind to the truth of the way things are. Now this shift from 
seeing the rise and fall of the khandas to being fully liberated. So that's the, that's the trigger there. She sees the rise and fall of the body, feelings, perception, mental activity, and consciousness. And then she stands up from that meditation or that reflection completely liberated and free. And, you know, it's like we never know when this kind of major event kind of happens, but we're putting in the causes and conditions all the time as we practice sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue, meditation, mindfulness, and samadhi, the effort of training the mind towards the wholesome, leaving aside the unwholesome, and the development of wisdom. You know, these practices of seeing what is really the clinging that we have to this perception of self and how, how hollow and unrealistic it is, and then coming back to what's true. You know, this is the wisdom of the Dhamma. Seeing it and experiencing it directly. When we meditate deeply, we we calm the body and we calm the mind, and then there's a point where it's like something else takes over. It's like the Dhamma takes over. And whatever comes, we observe it and we recognize, you know, like see it as it is. And then there's a, there's there are insights there that arise that show us the truth. It can take a lot of different forms. And you might say, well, I never have stuff like that happen in meditation. And that's okay, because there's, there's a process going on when we meditate inside. I'm sure there are changes in your life because of meditation. And if you find that there aren't, then there needs to be a reflection on what, what to do with meditation, what to do that might shift or change. You can, you know, talk with a spiritual friend or teacher about that and get some ideas of what to do differently. Any comments or questions about any of that? Anything you're finding here interesting, compelling, or confusing? <laughs> Did you want to say something? Or I can't tell Mariah if you've got your hand up or if that's just a yay, I like this. <laughs> um. I had my hand up, but it was to ask um, when you said we could ask a question about your process of removing the parts. Yep. And I've not looked uh, carefully at the chanting book or at the 32 body parts, the or I, so I can't, I don't have a command of the order, mm -hmm. but 
when it comes to the bones and sinews, the skeletal part, do you just envision um, detaching the soft tissue and then letting it be in a pile? And then yeah, take this, this is an interesting question. I, I reordered the body parts a bit because I noticed that um, I wanted to work from the outside in and um, I think the, the body parts are listed in a way that the poly really has a nice rhythm. Mm, oh, I see. So I think that, you know, like for me, I'm doing it in English in my mind and I'm reordered, I've reordered the parts for this process. And like, um, like I said, instead of like the first five are all this exterior stuff, you know, and, and, and then the novice, when you become a novice bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, you're given this meditation of these five right. parts. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And so you're you're acknowledging that that's all we see on the outside of the body. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when you reflect on that, like what's what's really there, and then when you go deeper into the body, you know, what is that like when we start looking at the the internal parts and you visualize them in the beginning. But then people talk about, you know, kind of really having them appear to you. It appears to you in a way that you really have a depth of realization about it, maybe a particular body part. So, so what I've done in my own practice with this is because um, all these fluids are mentioned in the 32 parts, like, like tears and and mucus and saliva and phlegm and the lungs and of course blood and urine and all these things and so i just go from hair of the head hair of the body nails teeth and then i remove the um, the pus and the sweat because I feel like that's mostly the skin on the skin or in the skin, and then I remove the skin. And in the Body Worlds book, I have there's one picture or there's one body that's um, um, preserved in uh, holding up its skin with its hand. I remember that from the exhibit. Yeah, and and so I imagine this skin with its particular dots and moles and whatever it's got, freckles and scars. And I think of it, if, if I took the skin off and I held it up in my hand and then I laid it down on the side and then what's left, there's this, actually, when you look at, when I look at the pictures of the bodies with all the, the muscles and everything, all the flesh there, it's quite nice. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's actually a much more modest image of the body than, than with the skin or without the flesh. And, and it's just like kind of seeing that the way the muscles are, are laid out and then, and then removing all the flesh. I just do it in one go, take all the flesh and put it aside. And then I go with the blood and there are images of the blood vessels all being preserved and you can see the whole network of blood vessels through the body. 
and then taking that out. And then what? And you've got the organs and the skeletal system. So I start with the brain to get out. And then the, the, the tears and the mucus in the sinuses and the saliva. And then I go to the heart and the phlegm in the lungs and then the lungs and then the diaphragm. So you can, I've added a few things that are missing from the 32 parts just because I know they're there. So I take the, the diaphragm away and then below that you've got the liver and the liver and the gallbladder kind of together. I take them out, but I, at first I take the bile away and then the liver and the gallbladder. And then I take away the spleen and the pancreas and then the contents of the stomach and the stomach itself and the contents of the intestines, the feces and all the intestines and then the mesentery that holds that all in place. And then the contents of the bladder, the urine and take away the kidneys and the bladder. And then all of me, yeah, I realize there are some things that aren't mentioned like different glands or various parts, but you just, you just, you're taking out everything out of the skeletal system and then you've got the skeleton. So when the, and then the skeleton, you have the oil of the joints, take that away and you've got the bone marrow, like sucking the bone marrow out of all of the bones and putting it aside. And then I start taking apart the skeleton, the skull first, moving down the body. So do you take the, the connective tissue I don't identify the connective tissue in particular in this case, but for one's own reflection, you could do it in whatever way. But again, I want to, I want you to be aware of what's important to observe about your mind. If this makes the mind go in the opposite direction from calm, it's calming just to hear you say it. I find it all very beautiful. I never got the disgusting. I always yeah. felt a little odd about the disgusting part. It was sort of like what I, I mentioned before, how years and decades I was supposed to have internalized this anger at the abusive, but I never felt that. Yeah. And I never felt it. That could have been being in nature and yeah. seeing, seeing decaying creatures, but I find it so very lovely. And I love the fluids. I've always, I mean, that was my field, fluids and flames. And I, I thought, I just find them so um, caring, you know, without all yeah. of that mucus and all, it just, we have a dry, brittle, you know, it keeps all that lubrication is what allows us for me, to, I think of it so, as so softening and cushioning. Yeah. Against gravity. Yeah, so I just want to make this point, not for you, Mariah, but for anyone, to make sure that there, there are times when this kind of reflection is appropriate and times when it's not. I see. If it brings up fear, if it brings up loathing, self-loathing, if it brings up um, anger or, or some, some negative kind of mental states, then turn to something else, turn to metta, turn to what, what's uplifting and beautiful. But if this is calming and, and provides a basis, like I said, it's important to have a level of calm in your meditation 
Uh, you know, like Ajahn Brahm says, he doesn't see this as a productive um, reflection or meditation object until you have some deep, some samadhi. Mm. So it's, it's, it's much more powerful when there is samadhi. And so developing your concentration to the point that it, you can, where your mind, your body is calm, your mind is calm, the hindrances are gone. There's some PT and sukha flooding the system, you know, tingling, warmth, whatever, a, a joy, a happiness. And it's from that platform that you do this reflection. And, and then it can be quite, quite helpful. And then just to finish answering your question, Mariah, it's like the details of it aren't so critical. There's no magic about the 32 parts. In fact, the, there were only 31 parts in the early Buddhist texts and then the commentary added the brain. So, you know, when I, when I visualize the body and I, and I bundle the gallbladder with the liver, it's like immaterial. It's just whatever kind of helps you see the truth of your body. So, yeah. Thank you, Maria. Yes, Maria? Um, I have a practical question, which is, what's the name of the book? It's called Body Worlds. Body. Body Worlds. And it's this whole, this process is developed by um, a German man um, who's using this to really um, help people understand better the body. And he poses the bodies in different, in different poses and you get to see uh, things I, I've seen a couple of, of the exhibits, and one of them was very much a, a teaching on nutrition and the kinds of things that you do. A lot of the images in the book were like when you see the lungs there, the lungs of smokers, and they're black. You can really see what it does to your body uh, to, you know, um, treat it in certain ways. Where is the exhibit? Well, it travels around, so you'd have to kind of look at, you know, where it might show up. I, I, it's like a body world and a book. Body and worlds, yeah. Okay. So then what do you think about Biko Nalio when, when he's doing this part of um, the Satipatthana? He's like, um, sim he simplifies, you Skin, know. You flesh and bones. Yeah, what I do you think? very powerful. That's what I've been doing. I never do all 32 parts. I just do that and I yeah. immediately, but yeah. I, I don't, I've never, like what you just did sounded very attractive to me, but what do you think about those two different styles? I think they're, I think they're both beautiful and valuable. And uh -huh. so for me also, when I um, was on, you know, sitting a couple of the retreats that Bhante Analyo gave and, and using his guided meditations, it's it's very, oh, there's one currently in San Jose. Okay, that's really good to know. But what in San Jose? Probably in a Body Worlds exhibit. I can't, oh. can't see all of it, but. No, it's on the Currently in San Jose. San Jose? Yeah. Want to do a field trip? Anyway, yes. um, we, had, we, we planned a field trip once before and then COVID hit. And I think that was kind of the end of it for us. Yeah. But we, we could do a field trip down here um, for people who are in the area. But um, the, the point um, about Bhante Analyo's meditation is it's wonderful. And, and if that's um, 
helpful. I think, I think there are different results. For me, I get different results. I think for me, the, this, especially at this time, I mean, there were two people on this last pilgrimage we took to Thailand. Two of the masters that we visited told me I should do this. I mean, the second one was less specific. He just said, you know, I should be doing this, you know, reflecting on the 32 parts of the body. Um, but the first one was Achan Biak, and he gave me this very specific instruction. And um, so I know that this is, you know, like I'm really picking this up with some, mm, yeah, let's try this and take it as far as we can. And I, I think for me, the result is... Um, a deeper relationship to the parts of my body and seeing them more directly as, as they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Where, where in San Jose and when in San Jose is a six? I think we'll have to look it up. It's the tech museum. <coughs> the tech museum. Sounds like. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have to buy, you can buy tickets online. You can buy tickets online. You can General probably hear her. includes the exhibit. I can hear her. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. Marilyn? I just, I want to say this was very helpful to me because I've for a long time had a hard time with this whole idea of, of, you know, examining the body and the disgusting. They used to, initially I heard it as the disgusting part of the body. It was like Mm -hmm. so disgusting. You're supposed to just really not want it you know, all the disgusting things. And I thought, well, I don't even know that much about the body. I should look into it. And the more I looked into it, the more amazing the body is. You know, I was just, I was just fascinated and, and, and so grateful to have such an amazing machine to ride around in, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I thought, this is wonderful. This is not disgusting. And I couldn't figure out what, what that was about. And the only kind of explanation I got from a monk was that this is not meant for me. This is meant for young men who are fascinated with their sexuality. And this is going to turn them off. And then that's what the point of it is. So your uh, explanation makes it a lot more valuable to me or to the situation. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Marilyn. It's it's true that when there is strong lust, um, which I've experienced myself, and actually I was really shocked it wasn't that long ago. I saw just just uh, by accident saw an image on the internet that really just the the lust just flared up like a wildfire inside, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling. Um, and and what really um, I mean, I was, you know, doing my usual things like paying attention to it and not identifying with it and not feeding it, you know, and all of that and feeling the sensations in the body and all that. But it was like, oh, God, I just, <laughs> and what really um, just calmed the fire, the cold water on the fire <laughs> was to like strip that image of the skin and see what was underneath. And it really does help for something like that. And, but this practice of 
seeing the body more realistically has as you're as you're experiencing has so much more depth to it you know regardless of those kinds of feelings that we might have when we're when we're intoxicated by what we see as beautiful or interesting and and it's really you know like this body how can we be at peace with its you know um you know both the amazingness of it and and the fragility of it and the impermanence of it and and so you know making use of it as a vehicle as a as an opportunity to practice i mean the buddha said everything we need to know we can learn from this body we can learn using the body this is a very important tool for us as practitioners as human beings so how we can express love this is how we you know um, take everything in from the world and and it is not ours it's got a, a life of its own a, an expiration date of its own i don't mean that in a deterministic way but in a in a real real you know the causes and conditions will fall apart that support the body's continuation and most people aren't ready for that when it happens and we can be we can be we can celebrate our the benefits we've gained from having this life and having this body and we can also let it go let's see what else we've got in the in the texts here Una Masa Bhikkhu said, I abandoned the five hindrances and I picked up the Dhamma as a mirror with the knowledge of insight only with the intention of realizing Nibbana. For knowing and seeing myself, I checked over this body, all of it, inside and out, internally and externally, my body looked vacant. So our intention is important. Having the intention to realize Nibbana is important. And I know for many people, that's not why they're practicing. But I always want to encourage everyone in that direction. That's what the Buddha was offering us. That's what he found. And that's what we can do to really free ourselves from all the dukkha and all the attachments and everything that's limiting. And the result is an extraordinary, unconditional, unlimited love and equanimity and peace and happiness. And I think that's 
all there is. I do want to remind everyone of the residential retreat at BCBS in April. And I'm going to put this part in the chat, I think, if I can. I can copy. Maybe I can. I'm going to stop sharing. Go to more. Go to more. There's a chat box out there, too, already. Oh. Yeah, I see it. Sometimes it's too small. There you go. Oh, there's chat. Yeah. And I'm just gonna. Oh, here it is. The links didn't go quite. The links didn't go. Oh, that's too bad. Well, what can I do about that? I can go there. Redirecting. That's the link. Yeah, go ahead. We both have controls and it's a little confusing. <laughs> Maybe somebody else is already not going to do it. Well, let's go. Take one. <laughs> like the Sati Center put it in already. Oh, great. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a video, but you can, you can look at that on here too, I think. Anyway. I'm going to close that. <laughs> I'm going to close the sharing. So, um, yeah, during the retreat, the residential retreat, we'll be practicing together and taking this deeper, all these four distortions. And of course, next week, we'll talk about beauty, the beautiful and the non-beautiful, and how our perceptions can change. Um, and we'll see what the enlightened bhikkhus and bhikkhunis had to say about that. <laughs> so I hope you're enjoying the practice and the reflections. And be sure to bring all your questions next time and um, whatever else. <laughs>